Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation Capital, a pre-seed venture firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season is sponsored by our friends at Silicon Valley Bank, a member of the FDIC. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. Learn more about Silicon Valley Bank services at svb.com. Bradley Tusk started Tusk Ventures to help startups work with governments at scale. Previously, Bradley served as the campaign manager for New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg's successful re-election bid in 2009. And previous to that, Bradley served as the deputy governor of the state of Illinois, as well as a communications director for New York Senator Charles Schumer. All right. I'm here with my partner, Alex. I'm Nick at Notation, and we're super excited to have Bradley Tusk with us here today. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Um, So so I'm excited about this episode. Your your DNA is certainly uh, looks a little different than some of the other um, folks we've had on the show. Um, Would love just as a start to hear, you know, a couple minutes about um, about your background. And yeah, so I I got into venture in a very non-traditional, weird way. So my background is in government politics. Um, Ran Mike Bloomberg's campaign for mayor in 2009, worked for him at City Hall during his first term. I was deputy governor of Illinois for four years, so oversaw the state's budget operations, legislation, policy, and communications. Spent a couple of years on the Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director. Spent two years at Lehman, creating and running a group to privatize state lotteries. And then after the Bloomberg campaign, started my first business, which is a consulting firm that runs multi-jurisdictional campaigns for big companies. So let's say you're Expedia, and the hotel industry is trying to pass new taxes and online travel booking in 12 states. We'll figure out what's the strategy to beat it back, build a team on the ground, run it like a campaign. And so it's typically kind of complicated problems happening in multiple places at once for the Google's, Comcast, Pepsi's, AT&T's, Walmart's of the world. Um, and kind of fell into tech in a, in a weird way, which is I'm sitting in a Walmart meeting in early 2011, phone rings, friend of mine, and he says, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation store, he's having some regulatory problems, would you mind talking to him? Hmm. Um, become Uber's first consultant that day. I got really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, I can't afford your fee, would you take equity? Right. Uh, thank God I said yes. Right. Uh, right. Although it might, ever, it might be worth less today than where I was a month ago. Had you uh, ever considered taking equity? No, I didn't even know what it services? was. Right. I mean, right. I, I, I am lucky that Travis was very decent about how he did it because I would have signed anything. Right. I know. I mean, I am, I am a, technically a lawyer by training. I'm technically a member of the New York Bar, but I know. Look, we have a whole bunch of lawyers who work here, and we still use Perkins Coie to do all of our venture legal right. work because, like, it's very technical and specific, right? Um, so, and at the time, were you like, all right, well, I'll take I a little bit know. of equity in this startup. It's Pretty probably much. not worth yeah, much. Yeah, I and, didn't know. I, look, here's what I knew. He was really impressive. He is really impressive. He has had a rough couple of weeks, but like, I don't think that changes how smart or driven or innovative he is. Um, and, you know, I didn't necessarily have any appreciation of what Uber was going to become because this was before they even launched in New York and I hadn't tried right. in San Francisco. Um, I knew that the incumbent was bad. Mm. Right. So, and so now we look for a lot, which is what's the juxtaposition between the product or the service that we're taking equity in and working with and the incumbent, right? Now, we tend to look at it both um, from a consumer standpoint. Is there a reason why people would want to use this product because they sort of really hate what's out there? But then also from a political regulatory standpoint, which is where most of our work happens, um, are they entrenched and and corrupt and right. calcified and beatable? So like Taxi um, hadn't improved their product in decades, treated their drivers really badly, had terrible history of racism in terms of picking people up, um, and basically just bought off politicians left and right, and that's how they protected themselves. And I kind of love those scenarios right. because I think you can turn them around pretty quickly 
you know, start accusing politicians of pay to play. And they're so terrified of being called corrupt that most of them kind of flip really fast. And so, in fact, we have, we have a rule that we try to make sure that none of our startups give money to politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you may say, I hate Donald Trump, so you gave money to Hillary Clinton. That's okay. But like, if you are giving money to some local state senator who all of a sudden mm. is a sponsor of a bill for or against your regulation, like that's clearly pay to play. I want the moral high ground, right? right? I believe we can accomplish a lot more in the world that we live in today of urban media and social media in making the accusation and spreading it far and wide than whatever goodwill you might generate because you wrote someone a check. And so, um, so that's what I think I knew was just that, like that Travis was impressive, and that Taxi kind of sucked. Right. Um, and then it was pretty clear how smart he was once I started working with him. Mm. And I had no idea what the academic would be worth, so it's not like I said, right. you know. Um, and in a both cool and sad way, so I've now taken equity in two dozens of twenty-four as of yesterday um, portfolio companies. And let's say over the next. 10 years, we had another 100, 200, whatever it is. None of them. I will always, it will always be worse than the first right. one that I randomly right. accidentally right. fell into, right? Right, right. Like, right. It's, it's, there. Yeah, it's right. like, I was talking to somebody earlier today about Bloomberg came up and Uber came up and I said, in some ways, like, they're, you know, Travis and Mike are the best people to work for, but also the worst because mm. they're such outliers that they're not good predictors of anything else. Mm. Um, you can't judge and compare other people to them. And you can't, you know, in some ways, everything's downhill from there. Like, it's funny. If you look at blue, people who worked for Mike in politics, um, they usually worked somewhere else, a lot of Schumer people, for example, who sort of had good credentials, but almost never go back into politics to work for someone else when they're done with Mike. Because once right. you're done with him, it's like, well, now that I've seen what it could be, right. they're all, everyone else okay. just sucks. Yeah. So, like, I don't want to go back What to is, that. what, I want to ask you a few questions yeah. about working for Mike, but what to you is... This is kind of a side, but what what is that could be? Like, what makes it so special working for him? Um, for Mike? Yeah. You know, I, it's a few things. He is what every politician claims to be, which is they just care about honest government, good government. They're not ideological. They're, it's total meritocracy. They're focused on results. They're transparent. They hold themselves accountable. He acts as the only one I've ever met that does all these things. Right. I'll give you the perfect example. The second project I ever worked on for Mike was um, we cataloged every promise he made in 2001 campaigns. So this was like not long after his election. And we made a list of all of them. We went to, I went to every commissioner of every agency and said, oh, how are you doing on these like 14 things that applied to the Parks Department in the campaign? And they had said, what 14 things? Because like running for office and holding office like two totally different jobs. I said, oh, you got to do these things. Right. And- not only do you have to do them, we are publicly going to release the status of every single promise, whether we've achieved it or not. And Mike's going to stand up at a press conference and release the entire report. So you want to be embarrassed in front of Mike and the press, go right ahead. Um, and the Times did a story not long after we did this, where they looked at like throughout American history and could not find an example of a single politician in American history wow. who had ever done that because it's insane, right? right. It was right. so Mike Bloomberg that it was right. perfect, right? Um, but nobody else could ever possibly do something like that in that way. So he just he is everything that um, every politician claims to be. And in some ways it's hard, right? Because I've been his political guy a lot. And so like, I don't think at this point it's, it's you know, the kimono's open, but like when he was thinking running for president in 2016, he wanted, what he wants controls, obviously Admiral Mullen, who had been the head of Joint Chiefs of Staff to be his running mate. And Admiral Mullen had wanted to do it as well. Right. I made the case internally saying, I think it should be Cheryl Sandberg. Now, I don't know if Cheryl would have said yes or not, but you know, serious candidate that you could respect being teamed with, not a great chance of winning, but not a, not an insignificant chance of winning mm-hmm. either. And I said, help us, we'll help us win. And he said, well, but I don't know a lot about national security. I said, well, can't we just buy that expertise? And he's mm. like, no, 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 it's really important. Like he was so earnest mm. that like he genuinely was worried about this. He genuinely wanted to sort of do the best job he possibly could if he were president, just like he did as right. mayor. Uh, and I said, well, we need votes. And like, that doesn't even in some ways occur to him, right? It's right. Like, like, he's so focused on like actually trying to do good things, like the right mm. thing, that it's hard to be his political guy sometimes mm. because he doesn't, he's so apolitical in a way. It was kind of like when, um, and, and stop me when this gets sort of too in the weeds on politics, but like when Cuomo became governor, I remember talking to, you know, one of his people 
And they were like, we just can't figure out how to like get Andrew and Mike kind of on the same page. It wasn't over policy, just sort of his personalities. And I said, look, Andrew wakes up in the morning and the first and only thing he thinks about is politics. And he goes right. to bed at night, only thinks about politics. And all day long, it's only thinks about politics. Right. Mike doesn't ever think about politics. And whether either one of them is right or wrong, neither can understand how someone else could be the other way. Andrew can't understand you could be an elected official and not be obsessed with politics. And Mike right. can't understand why you would be. Right. And like, they're wow. never going to have a mind melt. Like, why don't we just try to have like a respectful relationship you know, staff can talk and deal with each other. The principals can talk if they need to, but like they're never going to hit it off mm. because they're so radically different in their mindsets. What, what, um, as, as you worked for, um, you know, you're the communications director for Chuck Schumer. Um, you were, uh, Deputy Governor of Illinois. Did you do that remotely, by the way? Did you? No, I moved to, you uh, moved to. Yeah, I moved to Chicago. Okay, and okay. then I kind of commuted between Chicago and Springfield, Illinois, which is okay. the capital. Um, you worked for Mike Bloomberg. Which parts of those roles are now directly applicable to yeah, your it's a job today? There's, there's two things, right? So one would be from Mike. A lot of our culture and our man, my management style and all of that comes very directly from him. So if the, if the listeners could see where we are, open, we're in my office, open office. We all sit in a bullpen. Conference room we're sitting right now has glass walls. We're very flat structure company. Right. Um, and, you know, our, basically we pay people really well. We pay 100% of all of everyone's benefits. And the view is we are going to treat people really well. We're going to treat them like adults. We're going to pay them well. And they're going to be loyal. And they're going to be smart. And they're going to do a great job. Um, that's Mike's basic view. And Mike's great, at least as mayor, if you were to say, what was Mike Bloomberg's greatest accomplishment as mayor? I don't think it was any individual policy initiative like 311 or the tech camp at Southern Island right. or taking over the schools or whatever it was. It was that he just hired the best people he can get his hands on for every agency, every job with no regard to politics whatsoever. And then they gave them the freedom to do their jobs and they come up with good ideas. Like if you made a list of the top 100 things that happened, like I don't know that he personally thought of any of them. Mm. He just created a culture and an environment where those things could all happen. So from Mike, a lot of it is just, you know, one, the, the culture. Two, um, you know, he's really good about being a mentor. And I don't bother him too much, but I find that if I have a management question or when I, where I needed references for a fund or whatever else, he was there. And like, he's great about, you know, he doesn't always understand the context of my business enough to necessarily answer the question exactly right. Um, but, you know, he just is someone that I really, really admire. And so yeah. it's great to have it. Look, from Schumer, I don't think I necessarily want to adopt any of his management style or skills. But, you know, in our actual day-to-day -day work, Knowing how to use the press, work with the press, uh, and all of that is crucial. And there's no politician in America that's probably more mm. press savvy than Chuck Schumer. Um, in a crazy way, Trump could be, in a right. crazy way, he's the least, right? right? He's sort of both. Right. Um, so just watching Chuck for two years was incredibly helpful. I don't know that I necessarily want to emulate a lot of what I learned there, but it was good to learn either way. Um, so in Illinois, from Blagojevich was to what not to do, right? You know, right. don't break the law, don't go to jail. Right. Um, but, you know, the thing about him that was sort of remarkable is he had a view that was both highly rational and irrational at the same time, which is, and I mentioned earlier, the job of running for office and the job of holding office are in some ways two very different jobs. Blagojevich is the most impressive person I've ever met when it comes to running for office. Mm. His political retail skills were off, like astronomical top like 0.0001% of the global pop, you know, in the same way that like a professional baseball player, like, you know, it's like 0.001%. Right. He was like that for right. like retail political skills. He was like the bottom decile for like most human functioning, but like, <laughs> but for that, um, so he was great at running for office. He had no interest in actually doing the job of being right. governor to the point where he wouldn't come to the office for three or four months at a time. Wow. Um, and, I remember the I got there in March of 03, took office in January of 03. I got there in March and we went through the first legislative session. And you know, every session the legislature passes typically 500 bills. A lot of like the official state frog is the toad frog or whatever, the horned toad frog. It's not stupid shit, but like, but, you know, some of these things are like real policy issues. And we would have a budget review of every bill and a policy review and a legal review. And then I'd go to him and say, how do you want to do that? And like, he just wouldn't engage. And then finally, like, you just decide. I was like, what? And he's like, and I realized like the, the deadline was approaching, so I started signing bills, sort of vetoing bills. When I testified in his trial, 
And I said that. You were the oath. You know, yeah. I mean, they went back and checked whether four years of legislation was validly enacted because uh, it was. But, you know, um, so, you know, the same thing with pardons, the same thing with what the budget was going to be, what the legislative agenda was going to be. And so he gave me the opportunity to effectively run the fifth biggest state in America for four years. Mm. Um, So that was great. And he was actually, could be a lot of fun too. Um, He had, you don't go from being a first generation American son of a steel worker to being governor of the fifth biggest state by accident, right? Right. There's a certain amount of tremendous talent and discipline that gets you there. And Um, charisma. Incredibly charismatic. I don't know what he's like today because- um, you know, we haven't, other than seeing him in the courtroom, I haven't talked to, seen him or, or interacted with him in 11, 10, 11 years at this right. point. So he may be different now, now, such after all those years in jail. But like, my guess is like, even after he got arrested, he could have sat with you at lunch and you would have watched that be like, that guy's innocent and I'm going right. to keep this legal defense fund. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, I mean, his charisma and his political skills were just off the charts. So, you know, you learn, I, I think what I have learned is there it's important to learn from your bosses. It's also important to learn what not to emulate, mm-hmm. right? And they're sort of equally important. Um, you know, there was also a guy named Henry Stern who was the Parks Commissioner in New York City. He was my first boss out of college. I was his press secretary. Sure. And um, really, really kooky guy, really brilliant. You know, I think at the time he was the youngest graduate of Harvard Law School, but he also did things like, you know, for Groundhog's Day, we would like dig a giant hole in the ground, he would bury him, and then when the press would come, he'd pop his head out like the groundhog. <laughs> or Newsday, head of the head of the As front, the parks commissioner. Yeah, the front page was flakes in the forecast. It That's him, awesome. Like, head out of the ground. Oh, right. Crazy stuff like that all the time. And there were things about him, like his unbelievable genuine love for the park system and his work ethic. And, you know, he was unbelievably brilliant and hardworking, but also the kookiness had really bad sides to it too. So it was, you know, I learned a ton from him and I'm still very affectionate towards him. Um, but um, but there were things I also learned not to emulate, right? And so I think it's a little bit of both. And I think with my employees, hopefully there are qualities about me that they like and they emulate, but, I'm sh- but I have bad qualities too. And, you know, hopefully they know which ones to avoid. How did you go from your work with Uber? Um, and maybe it's helpful to describe like, you know, one sure. of the one or two key things you yeah. did there um, to beginning to form Tusk Ventures. Sure. As, as so, so for Uber over a six-year span now, and, and now I kind of am not really involved day to day. I'll just kind of give Rachel or Travis, you know, advice as they, as they ask for and need it. But um, but in the early days, there was no massive PR, GR team. It was Travis and me, right? And he'd work when he was in New York out of my conference room. And it wasn't right. this office. It was this you know, shitty little office around the corner that was a third, you know, sixth of the size, whatever yep. it was. Um and I think they were actually in a co-working space to start a little. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Maybe and then we were in Long Island City. The office then was in Long Island City. Yeah, yeah. Although when he, so if he wanted to be in Manhattan, he worked out of my office. Right. Um, and now they have this super cool office right. in West Chelsea. But like, um, but uh, so what we were doing for the first couple of years was like fighting the taxi cartel in every single market. So we would enter a market regulations would pop up immediately to shut us down or we get a cease and desist letter from the taxi commission all in the pockets of the taxi medallion owners and whether it was miami dc philly boston same thing everywhere right um and we'd fight it out and it could be a legislative fight it could be a regulatory fight it could be a grassroots fight and pretty consistently we won uh, because once uber's in a market and People say, okay, I can keep taking these shitty taxis right. or this thing is so much better. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? Yep. And this doesn't work for all startups. That doesn't work for most startups. But for Uber, and we've used the same thing for FanDuel reasonably well, if you have a product that people really like and they don't want to lose it, they will reach out and advocate on your behalf. Some of the first time this happened in 2012, the taxi commissioner in DC was named Ron Linton, totally in the pocket of the taxi industry. Um, and he had legislation that would put us out of business and Travis kind of did an appeal to DC Uber riders and a hundred thousand riders wrote unique, just totally organic emails to their council wow. members being like, please don't do this. Uh, we defeated the bad bill unanimously. Even the sponsor voted against her own bill. Wow. And then we passed our bill that we wrote unanimously. Right. Um, and Travis called it rolling thunder at the time. And we've used it all over the world. Um, so, you know, whenever there's a product that people really, really don't want to lose, They'll speak up on behalf of it. So 
Um, was doing that for Uber for a couple of years. And then in the summer of 2015, Bill de Blasio, who hopefully by the time the people are listening to this will have been indicted and no longer be mayor of New York City. He's under massive corruption yeah. investigation, but at the moment still yeah. is and was then, uh, took a bill that the taxi industry wrote that would have put a 1% cap, cap on Uber's growth. Right. And tried to pass with their city council. And usually the suspense in a city council fight is whether the final vote is 49 to 2 or 51 to nothing, right? You don't beat legislation at the mayor. There's a reason why there's that adage, you can't fight city hall, right? Right. Travis Kalanick fights city hall. And we run this vicious fucking campaign, right? Around. Yeah, I, I run this it. campaign, right? I remember it. And I remember the, the de Blasio button. Yeah, that, that, was, that was brilliant. That was not that amazing. That was amazing. A woman and Caitlin and the over office who came up with that. But, you know, we did $4 million worth of TV spots all from the left. I remember I was sitting in the in the Dallas airport when de Blasio proposed this. It's like raining. My flight got canceled. I'm annoyed. Travis calls me and says, did you see what happened? No. Explains it. And I said, I have two questions. How much can I spend? And is there anything I can't do? And he said, whatever you want, whatever you need to do. I said, okay, thanks. And I'm sitting on the plane. I get on some other flight. I'm like literally last row in the middle next to the bathroom. And it just sort of hits me like, de Blasio does really well when it's like him as the paradigm of progressive liberalism against like the big evil corporations. Right. What if we come at it from the left, right? Our drivers are all immigrants and working class people who didn't want to be better than being a taxi driver and they're trying to make a living. And our customers are frequently African-American Latinos who taxis won't pick up, right? And all of our ads, all of our messaging was attacking de Blasio from the left. They had no fucking idea what to do. They couldn't mm. handle it. Um, and the council members couldn't handle it either. And we started mm. picking up. We had five lobbying firms on the payroll and we're just picking off votes one by one and we're rolling out like Sherpton comes out for us. When the Times editorial board, you know, they're super left-wing hate tech, hate, hate business. Right. They came out for us. It was like, oh, we got a real shock here. <laughs> right. Um, and we won. When the city hall finally, you know, they kept trying to negotiate. We're like, we're not negotiating. The answer is just you have to go, you have to end this. So finally we got a call like, okay, can you please come down? You'll be happy. And before the meeting, we had like an internal discussion like, okay, what will we concede in the meeting? And when it came out, when it was over, nothing. They just wanted it to end. Wow. The only concession was that we'd take the ads off the air, which by the way, was costing us like a million bucks a week. We weren't, <laughs> you know, of course take the ads off the air. Uh, although we had bought, when the fight was still going on, we announced that we'd bought a whole nother month's worth of um, ads to make the point to council members like, even if we lose and you vote against us, we're just gonna keep fucking pounding you. So anyway, so we win this fight. It gets a lot of press, right? All over the world because, mm. and the Airbnb made it, so it's funny, they, they they made a mistake that was equivalent in impact to Uber getting this right and winning, which is whatever happens in New York is just seen globally, where the, the global mm. capital, the media, global capital finance. Right. So what Travis understood was if he won this fight, um, he was going to, it was going to have a positive chilling effect on bad regulation all over the world. And if he lost, people were coming at him all over the world. And we knew that, for example, in London, Mexico City, similar ideas were already under consideration. Chesky at Airbnb effectively made a very different decision a couple of years ago to sort of blow off and not really engage. Mm. I think he's just a much lower key guy than Travis. Mm. Um, and in in not deal, not resolving his New York regulatory issues, he gave the other side. So in this case, it's the hotel workers, the affordable housing advocates, the hotel industry, enough breathing room that they put together a coalition, ran legislation, and won. And now most of Airbnb's models are effectively illegal in New York. Um, and that has had a really bad effect for him where now similar bills are popping up all over the world right. because people, everyone saw it. So I'm answering question in a really long way, but we win this fight. It's a lot of fun. My personal financial situation had evolved a lot because I have, you know, a nice chunk of equity in Uber from the Series A. So now it's like, wow, you know, I grew up, you know, middle class. Like, had worked in government my whole life. Didn't expect to have anywhere that kind of money. Where'd you uh, go? Uh, Long Island, Brooklyn, and Long Island. Yep. And then we lived in a town called Lawrence, which is right by JFK Airport. Um, and so, um, I said, you know, I really like this startup stuff. It's these are really fun fights, and I hate the fact that you have these sort of entrenched interests who just bully innovation out of happening, right? And we're a pretty good bulwark against that because we know how to fight these fights, right? And because of the value of equity and because our consulting firm does and I guess did and still does does pretty well, I was able to build a, a business and say we we're going to work with a lot of startups 
to help take on their political fights, and we're going to do it so only in return for equity. Right. Um, and so we launched Tusk Ventures in August, August 3rd, 2015, so we're six months in now, yep. and we have now taken equity in 24 companies, um, typically Series A and B. Um, really after that, and look, you guys are super early stage, so I'm mentioning yep. the choir here, um, just the upside's not fair enough for us. There, there's be something unusual, like FanDuel we did a little later because the deal we got was really great, and because we were just really interested in that particular fight. I have a lot of background in kind of gaming and the politics of gaming and all that. So it was just up my alley. Um, but typically A and B, we're relatively sector agnostic. So we're in most sectors. You know, there are times where like recreational drones, like I think that they are fucked. Like I think, all, I think commercial drones, great business to be in, recreational mm. drones. Mm. The, from because the I number you said recreational drugs. Oh, we're in that. But okay, yeah. okay, that's not. We're fun. in cannabis. Okay. No, okay. Uh, it'll be a little. We talk about it. It'll, it'll be a, a, a little paused under. It seems like it, yeah. In general, yeah. but uh, we're in a company called Ease. Right. Ease is Uber right. for weed delivery, right. based in California. Um, and Series B company, really good company, and. Um, what Sean Spicer, who's the now very controversial press secretary for the president, said the other day was, our problem is with the recreational cannabis, right. not medicinal. Look, it is better for ease and for that whole sector if everything is legal. I look, kind of the Uber point from earlier, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So like, it's going to eventually be recreational mm. legal everywhere. Mm. Um, but at least for right now, um, you know, it's, it's recreationally going five states, medical in 29 states. And you can build a pretty good business off of the medical side alone. So, but like recreational drones, we want to area stay away from because it can be regulated by the FAA, DOT, Congress, state government, city government, county government, a park district, a stadium, an airport, like too many competing levels of jurisdiction. So there are yep. things where we just see it and say, look, from our vantage point of understanding government and politics, this is a loser, right? So we stay away from a couple of sectors like that. Um, ed tech generally scares us because any builds business based on based on K through 12 procurement. There's mm. like 15,000 school mm. districts in the US. Yep. They all have their own bureaucratic procurement process. That's a rough business to be in. Um, so there's a few like that that we know to stay out of, but we're in a lot of different sectors um, and a lot of interesting companies. And we look for Companies, A, that we think just like you guys are, you know, potentially really successful lucrative companies, but then also political fights that we find interesting. And interesting doesn't have to be the highest profile. It's like we do some really high profile stuff like FanDuel for Handy. We are trying to create a new form of worker classification. That's right. That's a big issue, right? And we're doing it in New York, California, and the federal government of D.C. So, like, big stage, big issue, a lot of fun. We devote a ton of resources to that. But, like, insurance tech has become a sector that we've gotten really into. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a company called Lemonade and a company called Slice. And it's a great sector because it is super calcified, right? So, like, the companies are there could not be more old school, yep. kind of hostile to innovation and change. And it's massive. So there's so much opportunity. So like what interests us could, you know, just sometimes just what catches our eyes, like a good opportunity and a way to change an industry. Sometimes we just don't like the idea of an entrenched interest sort of bullying out innovation. Sometimes it's a sector like cannabis that we think is ultimately going to be really successful. Esports, we're in a couple of kickbacks, same mm -hmm. thing. Um, so, you know, it kind of varies a little bit. Um, and it also depends, you know, it's not always an easy to get, deal to get done. So we take typically, let's say you're a Series A company, we're going to take like 2% of your company uh, in the form of warrants in return for our work. And you're not necessarily going to get a check from us. You know, the, wor the warrants you're giving us and the equity you're giving us is for our work. Right. We then get investment rights. Typically, it's 10% of new money in the next round, um, of which we can deploy. That all. you do out of a fund. Yes. yes. Well, but what's interesting, we can deploy none of it, right? There right. are times that we are... Because you know, we're inside this company, right? So we may say, yeah, this, this is not going to be a winner. Mm. We're not going to deploy capital. Um, or sometimes, in that case, usually we stop working with them also because why right. are we using our time in right. the equity? Um, sometimes we will work for the company because we think there are things about it we like, uh, either the potential or maybe just the issue we get really invested in, but we don't necessarily want to invest on top of that. And then there are times, we've done it four times now, where 
we love the company, we love the management team, and keep we sort of effectively are part of the management team because typically we're running all of the political, regulatory, government, media stuff for the company. Right. Um, so our diligence is pretty good, like because we're getting investment rights at the, one round and deploying on the next round. So let's say there's a year between rounds, um, we're under the hood for a long time. And we have a pretty good sense of like this is a good bet or not. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and we've written, you know, we wrote one check. There's eight million dollars written some big checks. Um, one check as low as seven fifty, um, in part because we have a fund, but we also we get ten percent. Usually, it's ten, the rights to invest ten percent of new money in the next round, excluding pro rata. So that could be depending on the size of the round, ten million dollars, right? Right. Um, our fund is not big enough to write a ten million dollar check. But what we'll do is we'll go back to our LPs or sometimes our friends and say, "Hey, if you want to co-invest, we're still we're not gonna, we won't take fees. We are going to take carry, um, but we'll take fees, and you can we'll create an SPV and you can invest through that." Um, and so our fund size is sort of weirdly variable because it really depends right. on the like for Lemonade, for example, it's an insurance tech company and. Uh, General Catalyst, let there be. And it was like a really sought after yep. round. And I think we had $2.9 million in investment rights. And we took, we used two of it. And we had people fought over that other 900,000. It mm. was actually kind of like mm. hard for us to divvy it up a little mm. bit. Um, FanDuel, which was, was a much bigger check, we just had a lot of investment rights. It was an inside round with amazing terms. And one of our LPs just loves the business. And we had one, we just won New York, which was a really tough fight. We've passed nine states. We're going to pass the house in Georgia today. Right. Um, and so they felt pretty fired up about it. And they they gave us a big check through through the SPV. So it, it, it'll vary. As you've gone from Uber to two, five, 10 companies now, yeah. you said about 25 companies yep. you work with. What have been some of the learnings or the challenges yeah. as, as you've scaled Tusk Ventures Sure. Well, so I, there's learnings. Um, and do you, do you think, I mean, you mentioned you could scale to 100. Do you but, think you'll but, scale back? I mean, like, yeah, so how here's do you think thing. about so, evolving over first time? First of all, we've, it's, we had a meeting about a lot of this a couple hours ago, so a lot of this is fresh in my head. So um, one is it is really hard to find good companies. I think every VC knows that. But for us, no one's going to give us, say, 1%, 2% of their company unless they face probably an existential regulatory threat or mm -hmm. there's such a big political opportunity that they want to convert on it, right? Um, so it has to be a company in a very specific space like that in a regulated industry. It has to be a company that we really believe in. So that's, you know, like so you guys too, the management team and, and yep. who else is investing and, what and you know, what the financials and everything else to sort of stuff we like. And then um, can we solve the problem? Do we think we'd like working with these people? We were in one, I'll, I won't name the company, but the CEO is, and they're doing well, but he was such an asshole that people work for me just started hating coming to work. And I was like, forget it, we're out. Like, I can't work with this. Like, I'm not going to have my employees hate their jobs. Or right. This, so fuck it, we'll. Right, we have a we put a sixty day out clause in every contract, right. and we exercise the out clause. Um, so we ask ourselves all those questions and try to figure out. And, and you know, I'd say of the twenty four companies, half a dozen are companies I know the equity is going to be great in. So Fanduel, Lemonade, Nexar, which is an AI company, Slice, which is an on demand insurance. It's it's interesting. It's, it's insurance for the on demand economy. So it's like right. when the Airbnb guest shows up, the insurance kicks in. When the Uber driver mm -hmm. turns on the app. The insurance mm. kicks in. Uh, Care of, which is a vitamin supplement company, Ripple. So there's like some that I know are going to really be just based on our own IRR to date um, are clear winners. There's a lot that, you know, we'll see, right? I don't know. They, they, if, if we're targeting like a five to six X on our winners, and we know there's a bunch of zeros in there too, we need some two or three Xs. So if, if our goal is to average, you know, the staff always says three X. I always say four X, right? Right. Um, right. But you know, let's call it three and a half. You know, we need some home runs, but we need some doubles. Uh, and there are companies that that I think I'm not going to name it because they'll be insulted that I call them a double and not a home run. Um, but we're perfectly happy in having them as a double. And then some lessons that we've learned. So one is we're the opposite of you guys. We can't do seed because what we do, you guys, I imagine, are really helping them figure out. What should the product be? Yep. What's the UI? How are you developing? How to build the engineering team? Yep. That's where you're adding a lot of value beyond your check, right? What we do is so nuanced and complex 
that, you know, we had this experience once where we come up with this really, I thought, pretty smart political solution to this big problem where portfolio companies had, their seed stage company. We get in a call to tell them, they said, oh, we changed our business model last night. I'm like, right. what? Right. <laughs> and, you know, right. not unreasonable to do that. That's what seed is. It's okay. Right. But unreasonable in the sense that we shouldn't be involved, right? Because the they shouldn't be giving us that kind of equity if if we can't do our work, nor do we even know what we're getting into, right? You've got to be pretty damn sure <laughs> they've found their core customer, they have product market yeah. fit, they're beginning to scale, and they're facing a very specific Right, there's got, and there could be, you know, there's once or twice where we've gotten to a company that has like institutional seed, that seed this, what are, the size of an A, and right. they're about to raise a really big A, or say, okay, right. this, is, this is effectively the same thing. Right. But putting those situations, like we went to Y, you know, I made this like total rookie mistake. So I think it was March of 2016, I went to Demo Day at YC, and, um, you know, fell in love with like 10 different companies, of course, right? Yes. <laughs> and we signed them up, right? Yeah. And then it was, it was like three, I think. But like, and none of them really worked out. Uh, right. The companies might be successful one day, but we couldn't add at the stage they were at real value to feel good about our, our work. Uh, and so we've learned no seed, um, no assholes. You know, and also because we so frequently will kind of date somebody and then we won't get a deal done. Um, if you don't have an existential regulatory problem or a massive opportunity, you're probably not going to give us 2% of your company. And there are times where people, I think, just sort of jerk us around because they want as much free advice as they can get their mm -hmm. hands on. So they pretend that they're going to do a deal. And so we're getting better at how do we screen for these things right. um, to make sure that we don't get used by people. Uh, because on one hand, my philosophy has always been, which I think is wrong, well, what am I going to do with these ideas if anyway? It's not like I'm going to monetize them some other way, so who cares? But our time is monetized yep. or monetizable and we're spending so much time giving away ideas that are not leading to deals that I realize we've got to sort of pull back a lot. Um, so we've gotten better at filtering and saying- A that. little, we've gotten better at recognizing we have a problem. Right. Um, I right. wouldn't say right. we've right. gotten better at filtering. Yeah. And the, the one real nice thing we have is a lot of our deal flow comes from other VCs who want to bring us in to mitigate their own regulatory risk. Mm -hmm. So, because our equity is not coming out of their allocation, our investment rights exclude pro rata, so it's not affecting their next round. So, there's nothing in our role that's adverse to them. And if they're investing in a company in regulated industry, by definition, they're taking on risk. And if we're in a position to mitigate that risk and protect their investment, it's in their interest to bring us on. And so, you know, there's a couple of funds, especially that we've we've gotten pretty close with, but that's become a place for us and also a validator, right? Um, there was one, you know, uh, I don't want to name which one it is just because I don't want to insult anybody, but there's a, a fund that I sent us a couple of great companies and another company that we felt like wasn't the right fit for us. Um, we liked them, it wasn't the right fit, and we just ended up doing a little bit of pro bono work just because the relationship with the fund mattered so sure. much to us. Sure. I was like, you know what? He, he seems to really care about this company, and it's worth it to me to have some of my people to give some time. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that happens too. And we also will frequently just happily hop on the phone with a VC who's considering an investment to say, you know, they'll say, what do you see here in terms of the risks? Yep. And I'll be like, this is what I, typically the answer is not do it or don't do it. It's, this is the problem. Here's how you would go about solving it. Here's probably what it would take in cost. And as you're factoring in 50 other data points, like this is another one, right? Yep. And if you choose to do it, let us know and maybe we'll join you and maybe we won't. As you've been building Tusk Ventures and pitching the fund, I mean, it is it one of the reasons we're excited to have you on today is just it, your your business looks different than a lot of yeah. other fund managers. How ha, has been explaining that complexity really difficult to LPs super, that are super hard traditional and we, funds? You know, we've raised some institutional capital, um, but in part because the I imagine there's a lot of education around it. There's a lot right? of education around it, and at the end of the day, you know, it's that saying: no one ever got fired for hiring McKinsey. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have to have balls to invest in our at least for fund one. Yeah, right. If our track record stays where it seems to be going, fund two should be pretty easy to raise. Knock on wood, simply because the, re the returns will be there. But in fund one, to no track record, a model no one's ever heard of before. We made it up. Yeah, um, you know, and no one wants to get fired, right? Yep. So. We got lucky that one institutional LP took a risk on us, and it's, it's paying off really well for them, but still. And then we filled in with a bunch of other people, too. Um, but, yeah, it's really hard. And here's the most frustrating part. Because everyone finds politics interesting, we wasted vast amounts of time because everybody wanted mm. the meeting. 
Because yeah. it was like cool, definitely the Uber guy, yeah. the Bloomberg guy, FanDuel. Yeah. 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 yeah, that'd be a cool meeting. It's a lot more interesting than whatever I'm supposed to do at 11 o'clock on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. So we go and we're excited and like dress nice and whatever. And then like, <laughs> it's bullshit, right? Right. In fact, I will say I have a column coming out on this uh, in the next couple of days. The, the amount of time wasted networking and meeting in the Valley and in tech blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, it is one of the most inefficient cultures I've ever been part of. Uh, and people just, you know, and I, that seems to be true on the fundraising side too, in part because if you're a portfolio manager, you don't really have that much to do in a way, right? You're making some investments, you're following up on your investments, you're mm-hmm. meeting with potential funds, mm-hmm. but that's kind of your job. It's just to do lots and lots and lots of meetings that don't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And we're like the most fun meeting you're going to have all day, right? Because I don't behave probably like a typical VC for better or for worse, but it's sort of mildly entertaining for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, you can ask me about Trump and you'll get sort of an informed answer or Mike Bloomberg or Travis or whatever right. it is. And so we wasted incredible, we, I mean, we, we did raise a fund, but we wasted huge amounts of time meeting with people for their sort of, you know, yeah, for shooting amusement, the shit. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to them being serious about investing. And I will say, if the returns we have now hold, um, there were people who will not get meetings for fun too, simply because I thought they were just mm. joking us around. Mm. How is your capitalization structure different given, I, it feels like you have very different operating requirements because yeah. you can't just take Two percent of funds raised and use that to fund your operations because you're nope. potentially very nope. totally different heavy. You have a lot of very time intensive work with yeah. with companies, with lobbying, with everything else you're doing. So he, here's how we do because it's t- I probably just a different structure than else has, right? Which is we have two funds effectively within it. So one is the equity for services fund. So I am the sole LP of that. I fund all the operations, which are effectively because that's fairly capital intensive. It's to, it's to run and scale. personnel. So it's eighty nine percent. I was looking at the numbers. Right, eighty nine percent of our costs are personnel, um, and you know the rest is sort of the usual stuff, right? You know subscriptions and whatever legal. Um, and so I own about seventy five percent of the equity in that fund. The employees have the other twenty five percent, roughly. Um, and so that's sort of the first part. And, you know, there's a decent amount of risk for me personally in this. It costs me millions of dollars a year to run this business. Right. It's all out of my pocket. Um, luckily, my consulting firm does well enough that, like, you know, one can fund the other. But still, um, it's expensive. But I am betting that if we can, if it costs me a couple million dollars a year to run this, but I can generate 4X, let's say, or 3X, let's say it costs me 4 million bucks a year to run it, and I can take in 12 million bucks a year, in earned based on equity and then get a three and a half X return that's producing 42 yep. million off of 4 million of which I own 75% tax of cap gains. Um, so it's a pretty good return, right? Um, but a lot of risk just like venture. Yep. But the difference is typical VC, you guys have the risk of this is what you're doing with your life and your time, but the capital is from your investors. Not I mean, you have your GP commitment, but otherwise it's, it's your investors. I am the investor, right? So I'm putting. Which is generally a lot of speaking, money. what LPs and institutional LPs want to see. I mean, you are literally, you know, yeah. Putting the in fact, I argue to them that you know they they had a really hard time understanding the structure where so well, are there all these conflicts of interest that you are getting equity in all these companies, and then you're first deciding whether or not to invest in them, right? And I argued. I'm doing you a huge favor because every zero I'm absorbing because it's never right. getting to the investment phase, right? right? You know, we pick plenty of shitty companies, but uh, I basically have to like go to all the effort to get them. Then it takes us a few months to realize that it was a mistake. And right. then there's a 60 day out clause. So like for six months, I'm sort of dealing with this problem. Mm-hmm. And there's no time or money wasted even diligencing these companies, let alone investing in them. Because all the hard lessons were learned on my dime, right? Right. So I would say we are doing a massive favor for our LPs because. So let's say you know we end up like a thirty percent IRR on the on the equity for services fund. It should be significantly higher on the investment fund. Yep. Because we're only investing in the best of the best, and we don't do a deal if we don't get investment rights. So we're not competing with anybody. We are guaranteed those investment rights. You know, once in a while, if it's a really hot. Deal the the CEO might call and say, "Hey, maybe you could take five percent." So right. we're we're going to use the full allocation. Um, so, <laughs> so, um, but you know, uh, so 
it is unorthodox, and I think unorthodox for a lot of people is, is scary, but I would argue it's a pretty good model. Like, when else do you know the fund you're investing in has guaranteed investment rights and is under the hood for six, 12 months yep. working with the management team? Yep. So that's my perspective on it. We'll see, and then we'll see how, how we do. But look, it's venture. So could all these seemingly great companies go to shit and I should have been putting that money every year in a mutual fund instead? Yeah, but you know what? This is a lot more interesting. It's a lot more fun. I think we are stopping a lot of bad guys from bullying innovation out of, out of, out of business. And so we're doing some good things and it's interesting and I like working on it. And, you know, it should do okay. I have one last question yeah. for you and then we'll let you go. Um, I know you've been spending um, a lot more time in DC. Yeah. I read an article about that, uh, particularly given the new administration. Yeah. Um, we can't let you go without at least asking you a Talk question yeah. on uh, on what's going on down there, and, and particularly um, how you're helping the company yeah. work so the, with today navigate the new two answers. That's okay. There's yeah. an in regards to venture and startup answer, yep. and then there's a broader answer, right? Which actually I have a much better sense of the first one than the second one, right? <laughs> uh, right. So most startups are actually regulated at the state and local level, not the federal level. So if you're a B2C company of any kind, you're regulated typically by state government. Um, so in reality, the 50 states and you know the 100 biggest cities are really much more important from a regulatory standpoint than the federal government. But one of the reasons federal government has not been that important is because you've had a Republican Congress and Democratic White House, and therefore just nothing got done. Mm -hmm. And as a result, nothing's really getting done some ways it doesn't really matter, right? So whether you like what's happening in Washington or not, and it scares the shit out of me, you have one party now in control of everything, which means legislation can move, things can happen, right? And you got to be able to at least be aware of it, if not push things forward. And there could be, you know, I think it's emotionally and morally very hard for a lot of startup CEOs because they may really hate Trump, and yet there may be things for the business opportunities that are pretty good, right? right. Um, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I wrote a memo, which I think was the article that you are mentioning. Right. Uh, it's a BuzzFeed article, I think. And um, I wrote a memo to all our portfolio companies saying, like, here are the things you should think through before jumping publicly into any issue around Trump. And it was basically a list of criteria saying, you know, you should neither be cowed into not acting because you're afraid of a bad tweet from him, but you also don't have, like, just because your friends are angry or anxious or you are, doesn't mean you need to jump headfirst into everything either. Wait till there's an issue that is truly relevant to your business where you truly have something to say and expertise and then speak, and mm -hmm. it's credible, right? And there are people who are speaking way too much, and there are people who are afraid and keeping their heads in the sand, and they're both problematic. And, like, it's totally context-dependent, but what I was trying to do was just give... Um, people some advice as to how to think through these questions. Right. And so there are things, there are issues like worker classification reform where you have an opportunity to do things now in D.C. that you wouldn't have had. You know, the old, when you look at work classification reform, it's basically giving benefits to sharing economy workers, healthcare workers, comp disability, things like that. It's good for the work. Workers want it. The companies want to do it. The unions don't like it because the unions say to themselves, if someone can be an independent contractor and get benefits, who the fuck's going to join a union? Right. So they're trying to kill it in most places. But, you know, if Chuck Schumer was Senate Majority Leader, they have a ton of sway with him. They fund all his campaigns. He would have mm. killed it for them. Mm. Mitch McConnell's not going to do that. Paul Ryan's not going to do that. Um, so there's an opportunity to pass legislation that's pretty meaningful that will help tens of millions of people get benefits who don't have them otherwise um, and help, you know, what the startups really want is just the ability to provide the stuff because they think it will help them recruit and retain better people on the platform. And also to not constantly get be hauled, before, hauled before State Department of Labor, uh, Departments of Labor, where they're saying, oh, you're not, they're not dependent contractors, employees. And it's just that even though you typically win, not always, it's a expensive, unpleasant right. process. It's a distraction. And so there's a bunch happening and you got to, Deal with it. I think if you're in um, like the lending space, for example, and we're not, but if you were, uh, if Clinton had won, <coughs> I think she would have handed over control of the CFPB, which is the agency that deals with that stuff, to the sort of the Sanders Warren wing of the party, and they would have wiped that whole peer-to-peer mm. -peer lending industry off the map. Mm. Whereas Trump's trying to get rid of the CFPB as an agency, right? He's trying to wipe right. him off the map. Um, <laughs> so it's just a radical change right. in in both ways. So from that perspective. I think you first have to understand who regulates you. And it's, 
if you have federal regulation or an opportunity to achieve something at federal level, uh, and there are some interesting things, drones, self-driving cars, self-driving trucks, there's some pretty big issues, um, then you should think about, okay, how can I either advance my agenda or protect myself? And that will often conflict with how you feel as an American and a human being, mm. which is, you know, I don't, I think that if you polled most people in tech, there'd be pretty strong opposition to Trump. So there's, you know, not just opportunity for your business, but arguably fiduciary responsibility to your investors and your employees right. to pursue what's best for the business. Um, and at the same time, there could be moral revulsion around it. So like I've had a couple of times where I've like said to people, you could probably get this done. Like one person I think was like, they always went to the ambassador to Italy. And I was like, but you will have to stand next to Trump at the press conference. And like, right. if you're willing to do that, this is achievable. Right. But you got to be willing to do that, right? And like some people say, okay. Some people say, no. I know two different people who turned out being secretary of education, really qualified, would have been great. But they both just said, I just can't be wow. part of this. You know, they're not, wow. they were both educators. They weren't people in tech, but like right. they just couldn't be part of it. Um, you know, Alt School is one of our portfolio companies, and Max and T is the CEO. Like, Max would be a really interesting choice for that job. Like, knowing Max's politics, I don't see any scenario where he could ever agree with you like right. that, right? So, like, it's it's a really hard, complicated thing, but I would just say this. If, if there's one up, upshot to what I just said, it's if you are a startup in a regulated industry or if you're a VC investing in startup industries, you have to at least know who regulates you, who your competitors' interests are, what their politics are, who they're giving money to, what they could do to you, uh, how do you protect yourself, how do you advance your agenda, right? You don't actually have to act on it. You don't have to work with us. You know, odds are we won't get a deal done anyway. But like, you got—it's malpractice to not know it. Yep. Right. Uh, or for the same reason, procurement. I can't tell you how the, the government is the largest purchaser of everything, and I can't tell you how many startups say, "Oh, I don't want to deal with the RFP process." Mm -hmm. But they're potentially your biggest customer, and like, it's a huge pain in the ass. But they're very sticky contracts, and they're very big contracts. Right. And like. Sometimes we're like, we'll fill out the RFP, you know, <laughs> like, you know, um, so you can't, what's, it's okay to choose not to engage in political process. If that's, you know, the right conclusion, it's inexcusable to not know what's going on. Yep. Yep. So. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having us. This was awesome. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, and I think our, our listeners will too. Cool. Thanks, Brian. Well, thanks for listening. Okay. Bye. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm. We invest in amazing technical teams in New York at the infancy of an idea. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. We'd like to thank Silicon Valley Bank for sponsoring season two of Origins. At SVB, the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, its experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the Silicon Valley Bank team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you liked this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glawe, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.